1: Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books in Intellectual History, we have Dr. Ben Railton, who is a professor of English and coordinator of American Studies at Fitchburg State University, and the author of Of the I Sing, The Contested History of American Patriotism published by Roman and Littlefield in 2021. Welcome to the show, Dr. Railton.
2: Thank you so much, Eddie. I'm really excited to be here and be chatting with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, Of the I Saying is a cogently written and timely text on the contested history of patriotism in the United States. First, we will discuss Dr. Railton's research and teaching interest some thoughts on intellectual history in general, and then we will engage in a more in-depth discussion of his work of the I Sing. So, Ben, tell us a little bit about your teaching and research interests.
2: Sure. So, the way that I would most succinctly define it is American studies questions—questions questions about national narratives, collective memory, national identity sort of the big questions about who we are, who we've been, our past, our present, our ideals, our realities, those kind of questions are what really motivate my work. And even though obviously a lot of my classes are are much more specific than that, the American Lit Survey or 20th century American authors, and a lot of my scholarly works focus on different pieces within those frames, those big frames are really what, what drive all of my work and really trying to Add my voice to conversations about them, respond to the conversations that are happening in all different aspects of our society and help students think through those. Because I think as fellow Americans, um, we really are all so kind of implicated in and connected by and also contributing to those big national conversations. And so that's really my defining interest and the through line across, I would say, all the different stuff I teach and write about.
1: So, tell us how you came to study um you know literature, history, and culture or American studies more specifically. Why not I don't know German studies or or some other topic. you know, how did you come to focus on this?
2: I think a lot of it was a combination of things like I'm sure it is for for many of us who are are scholars in one way or another, a combination of things in my childhood and my young life. Um, I was growing up in a house with two. Out of English teachers of various types, readers, writers, people who, who, who thought a lot about books, shared them, um, read them with me, talked to me about them, and, and all my most influential early teachers were also English teachers, so I had this real through line of, of English and reading and writing, but I was also growing up in Virginia, which like Massachusetts where I now live is just sort of saturated. It certainly was in the 1980s when I was growing up with, with history, historic sites, cultural sites, Um, Representations of the past. I grew up in Charlottesville, which, as we all know for the last few years, is such a contested space of historical representation. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that combination the the sort of English world, the reading and writing world, and then this kind of saturation in not just history, but of course the representations of it, the images of it um, really just kind of became my dual interest. And from a pretty early age, certainly when I was thinking about college and college majors. I was really trying to look for one that could combine those interests. And I found that I got to study in a a department called history and literature that was, you know, very much an interdisciplinary uh, department in that way. And that's really been my through line ever since. Even though my Ph.D. was English, it was very much an American studies dissertation that I wrote. And and that's kind of been my continued through line is thinking about the the conversation between the combination of the connections across those different ways of thinking about who we are.
1: Yeah. One thing I really enjoy about your book is that I think it does several things at once. I mean, because you do really close textual reading of so many different historical documents, and you can kind of, I think, your, your training sort of unfolds, right, with background in American studies, literature, and history. But it's a book, I think, that just does those things at once well, and that's not an easy task. Um, I think, you know, I look at you as an intellectual historian. I, like, this is an intellectual history. And um, we have to remember, you know, intellectual history comes out of literary studies. Like a lot of the, I think, approaches that we take as intellectual historians are obviously very much closely related to the approach you take with this book. So really, it's, you know I think it's a perfect book for this channel um, for that reason. And so we, let's turn to this question of intellectual history. Um, it is a history of the idea of American patriotism and the contestant meaning. So, you know, I look at you, I, I think I really, even with your other books, it's, as, as an intellectual historian. So what do you think about that phrase and what are your thoughts on intellectual history?
2: Well, first of all, I take it as a very high compliment, so I appreciate it, and and not just because of the channel we're on, but because there's such a rich legacy of folks working in in that vein, in those conversations for hundreds of years, and certainly right now as well. Um, And and I think the way that I would particularly frame it, and it does connect, as you say, to other parts of my interests and training and, and teaching and work, is that to me, intellectual history overall, and certainly things like patriotism, history they're stories in a lot of ways they're narratives um, that doesn't mean there aren't real you know events that they connect to and figures that they connect to and so on but at their heart I think that's what they are. they are stories that we tell and retell and contest and offer alternatives to um, history itself is a it's a story it's a set of stories and and so I, I think by starting there for me it both means yes that I'm very deeply interested in the idea of of those stories of the ones we tell and retell and share and contest and the defining ones and the and the underrepresented ones within within America and that then that allows me to think about all texts all kinds of sources as part of that conversation right that sometimes mm-hmm. i think the phrase intellectual history can feel uh, wrongly i think but it can feel like it might mean you know uh, laws or philosophy or or sort of high a more highbrow versions of sources but you know but to me, it's just as much songs and, and posters and material culture, all of it is part of the stories. They have their own stories and then they contribute to these bigger stories. And so in terms of what you were saying about the, the work of the book, that's really the back and forth that I was trying for. And I'm glad that it felt that way is you know, close reading and paying real close attention to lots of different sources and kinds of sources to think about the stories that they tell but then using that to try to open up these bigger stories of these different types of patriotism, of patriotism overall, of America overall.
1: Yeah, I think it's very important because you're you're looking at ideas and the structure of thought over time. That is a, a difficult task, and I think, I I think that sometimes even for the intellectual historian, right, doesn't necessarily get pulled off very well. Right, because you're moving between so many different sources and and doing, I think, a lot of things at once. Right, it's it's a lot of things at once happening, and it gets us to this this um, phrase, intellectual. And like you say, it's sort of when we hear the term intellectual, we think, oh, college professor or you know, a person who is writing books and the production of knowledge. But I'm interested in. The Intellectualism of the Everyday is something I call the the Intellectualism of the Everyday, which is um, a section in my my book that's coming out, I promise, (laughs) soon. In my edited volume, my next is a follow-up to bury my heart. And the last section is the Intellectualism of the Everyday and just looking at everyday people and how they think about problems and ideas is we all have the capacity to think. So, um, the intellectuals in your book, um, who are so looking at this term "intellectual," how does it apply to maybe some of the characters in your book?
2: Yeah, I mean, I just think you said it perfectly, and that makes me even more excited for that that book you are you are promising, and that I'm excited to read because I do think, I mean, I think almost always these separations that we might try to make between different strata or different types of sources or different disciplines, they are, there may be understandably understandable in academic settings or something, but in, in, in the, our world, in our society, they don't hold, they don't, they don't really matter as much as just thinking about all of the, all of the voices and stories that are in that conversation. And, and that the everyday is precisely where they all meet, right? Whether it's a, you know, a lawmaker drafting a law, or an academic publishing a book, or a songwriter, or an activist participating in a protest, and so to me, starting with the premise that all of the figures and and events that I'm looking at can be seen as part of these contested stories in 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 equal measure. They're doing different things. Often they're challenging each other, but absolutely a a, a songwriter and performer like Nina Simone in my '60s chapter is absolutely as much an intellectual historian and artist and participant in these conversations as you know um woodrow wilson in my early 20th century chapter or abraham lincoln to use a more positive presidential example um, in in creating these stories and i think still to this day too much of the time um, we we valorize perhaps what we see as the more powerful voices or figures like a lincoln in creating those national narratives and creating those stories and contributing to them. Um, But at the end of the day, they were doing that same work in those same everyday spaces, um, perhaps more political in one case or cultural in another or et cetera, journalistic, et cetera. But they're all contributing their stories, their voices to those larger debates and stories. And so I think that that pairing, for example, Nina Simone and Abraham Lincoln as equally Part of that intellectual history and part of those debates over America, patriotism, our national narratives. That's really kind of the heart of what I'm interested in and how I'm trying to think about this.
1: Yeah, you're going to get some people mad <laughs> I with take that, it. right? I, I mean, take it. It, it's but I totally agree with you, um, you know, because you open the book by talking about, you know, Phyllis Wheatley and then, you know, George Washington and her ideas and contributing to this um, kind of mythic patriotism. But she's in these conversations as well as, you know, a pop singer in the 1960s because they're contributing to the knowledge of patriotism and just similar to Kaepernick taking a knee. You know, he has uh, ideas about what it means to be patriotic. It, It might not be produced in a book, in, you know, a lecture hall somewhere. So they're all, you know, all these, um, competing ideas and people producing ideas in the street every day is I think intrinsic to understanding that, that concept of the intellectual. And, um, so, yeah, I totally agree with that.
2: And if I can say, uh, sorry, just one more thing about that quickly, I think another benefit of that is it allows then all contemporary Americans, all of us now to imagine genuinely that we have a part that we can play in that, right? That you don't have to be a president or the leader of an organization or a very prominent public scholar or whatever to, to be part of that intellectualism of the everyday, part of our current debates, our current stories, our current narratives. It is it is genuinely D democratic it, it has to be. And, and the more we imagine that, the more we can then think about what roles we can play and what stories we can contribute. So I think there's a real contemporary value to that, too.
1: Absolutely. I, it makes me also think about when you think about labor history and the labor movement and, you know, who's producing the ideas and the knowledge, um, workers, everyday workers in the factory floor are thinking about, I'm being oppressed. I don't want to be oppressed anymore. We got to do something about it. And so that's a good, I think, lens through which to look at the intellectual of the everyday person. And um, I'm looking at uh, Ernie Thompson, who was a labor leader Uh in northern New Jersey, you know, and doesn't have, you know, formal education. You know, he's working in these factories and he decides, you know, hey, you know, we should have a labor union. And so he goes on to help create the National Negro Labor Labor Council the (NNLC). Mm-hmm. Not too much is written about him, um, but he is um, also writing. He wrote two books before he died, and he's writing the speeches for the NNLC leadership. Like he, he, he fits the bill of like that more kind of, I guess, um, traditional definition too i mean i'm like this guy is working 20 hours a day or whatever to these factories and he's still producing knowledge he's producing books and i'm saying i can't i couldn't do that <laughs> he's a he's a fascinating character but sources you mentioned sources let's um let's talk some more about your sources and the various um you know uh sources that you use to uh put your narrative together
2: sure and i think The starting point for me, and you'd mentioned before trying to move across these different time periods, um, which is the structure of the book and was the goal of mine. And and it means that any one of the chapters, of course, one of the starting points has to be choosing the pretty small number of sources compared to what's possible compared to, you know, you could write obviously whole books on each of these time periods and and many folks have. And I, I try to cite a lot of them in my further reading section. And so for me, it really became paramount to I mean think about these four types of patriotism that i know we'll talk about but then within that think about for each chapter coming up with a not just a number of sources but a variety of sources of different types different disciplines to really allow for that idea of not just moving across the time periods but thinking within them kind of latitudinally about a lot of different parts of a culture and society so it depended a little on the time period obviously there aren't you know, films or recorded music from, say, the revolutionary era compared to the 20th century. But I still tried for really that variety. So, you know, some literary texts in each chapter, some some laws and speeches and, and political documents, some journalistic work, some some pop culture works of one kind or another, which, again, might mean very different things in in different periods. Um, but just really thinking about that interdisciplinarity that those multiple types of sources because of everything we've been talking about, that that's how the conversations get created. And there's not, there are differences in power, there are differences in prominence, and maybe in how things can get out there. But they're all, again, contributing to that conversation and in ways that are not, that don't just line up with the power, right? And so I think Wheatley's a great example. Um, Phyllis Wheatley, an enslaved young woman under 20 at the time in Massachusetts, you know, gains the attention of George Washington and Tom Paine, and gets published in the Pennsylvania Magazine, and becomes a really prominent voice in that moment through her own writing and perspective and poetry um, in a way that is at least as important, if not more so to what someone like Washington contributes to the conversations about America and patriotism in that era. At the very least, she's in conversation with him. So it was both a matter of trying to find a a variety of sources to really do justice to that idea of the multiplicity of, of layers of society and culture but also you know really especially making sure to include ones who can model what you were just nicely talking about the, the intellectual of the everyday who are not any less published and intellectual um, and who who sometimes have been overlooked in in favor of perhaps those more historically dominant figures like presidents or or other leaders along those lines. So those were a couple of motivations of the interdisciplinarity and then making sure to include in every chapter, a number of voices and communities who have at times been underrepresented in the way we think about these debates.
1: Yeah, I think the text is very thoughtful in that way. And, um, you know, it was like you say, everyday people speak words and knowledge into existence. And um, I think as a field, intellectual history has to embrace that fully because you're going to leave out so many people. You're gonna leave out workers, you'll leave out, you know, women, African-Americans, Native Americans. Like you have to, I think, accept that there's a more um, broadly um, defined term called intellectual. Um, If not, you're just leaving out so many voices. Uh, So I, I like the way that you did that in terms of balancing those voices throughout the text. Let's talk methods. For about thirty seconds, <laughs> nobody wants to talk methods, right? But I know some grad students listen to the New Books Network. I'm sure, and so they might want to hear about
2: methods as they kind of
1: pull together their sure. dissertations.
2: Absolutely, and and I think it's important at the very least that we are kind of open and intentional in 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 talking about these things and you know, thinking about our own and and being self reflective as well as as you know, sharing with others. So I'm always in favor of that and. I would say just a couple quick things um one is more and more as my projects and my career have moved along i personally have moved to what i would call more of a kind of synthesis method um, where as we've talked about a lot already I'm, I'm pulling together multiple sources and contexts in one time period and then multiple time periods across the whole project And and what that means i'm saying that just to be really clear about this is that i depend on the work of of scholars who are doing specialized work on individual figures and individual histories and individual events and so on Um, and so i think there's a real balance there and there needs to continue to be between the more in-depth work on very particular and very important topics and then work that tries to synthesize and pull different things together um and and this project for sure was more of a synthetic one for me so that's one thing compared to say my dissertation which was more specialized i would say so that's one thing that i would say and then the other thing I would say about method is, is something you've mentioned, but I really do want to emphasize it because I don't think it's just a literary concept, although it sometimes gets pigeonholed there, maybe, which is uh, close reading. Um, I really do believe, as, as much as I can in these brief chapters and these brief sections within chapters, in trying to do justice to what's happening in texts of all kinds, um, to bring in quotes, to bring in specifics, and really try to pay attention to how is that voice, that text creating these ideas, um, what choices are they making? What work are they doing? Even if it's ones that I'm being more critical of, such as the ones that I define as mythic patriotism, that might be more exclusionary or more divisive, I still want to try to do that close reading work and say, you know, in this speech from uh, Bishop Quayle, this, this 1920 speech from a, a Methodist uh, minister arguing that the labor movement is deeply un-American, how is he doing that? What choices is he making? How can I take apart that speech a little to think about his writing and his voice and his work? So that close reading um, emphasis is, I would say the method within the kind of synthetic chapters and structure of the book.
1: Yeah. I think an important point that you make as you develop and grow as a scholar, you know, writing, you know, more of a monograph, maybe earlier in your career or, you know, as a grad student versus um doing the work of synthesis and what that entails and involves and why it's so important, you know, synthesis, uh, works of synth- synthesis are very important, right. To move, you know, scholarship forward, I think. Uh, so let's get into the book a little bit more. Um, so what makes your analysis unique or distinct from previous studies of American patriotism? Of course, you know, there are many for sure, but uh, what is distinctive about yours there's a two-part question. So what is distinctive? What do you think is unique or distinctive about your study versus, uh, or or the second question then is, uh, and, and then why use America the Beautiful as the backdrop to the larger discussion about patriotism?
2: So I would say that there are three things that I I, I bring together that make this project Distinctive or, or or I hope help it contribute something to these ongoing conversations um, about patriotism and about America and about many related topics and those three things which we've mentioned already a little bit so just to to reiterate them quickly one is not taking patriotism as as a given or something that there's even any vaguely kind of agreed upon definition of but saying instead. No, I think there's really been these multiple contested alternatives, these multiple possibilities. And I ultimately came up with four that I saw as as four central threads, four central ones that I know we'll keep talking about. And so I think that's one thing was just sort of starting with the idea that patriotism doesn't have one meaning. It never has. It's always been contested through these different alternative possibilities. A second is the idea of not focusing in the structure of the book on just those categories, but trying to trace each of them and all of them across time in the way that we've talked about moving through eight different time periods from the revolution up through the late 20th century and then up to our own moment in the conclusion. And so thinking in in that longitudinal way, thinking about how all these categories have been in play throughout our histories and how we can trace their different evolutions as well as their relationships to each other. I think that is somewhat uh, distinctive in what I'm trying to do. And then the third, and it gets to America the Beautiful, I guess, is the idea that in both of those cases, how the different categories, how the different versions of patriotism get created, and how we can trace them across time, that it's really about the expression of them through texts and voices, um, rather than say just you know one kind of text like a speech or a, or the what the government is doing, um, but rather through all texts and voices in the, in the everyday and and social and cultural ways that we've been addressing here and. And so then using that close reading skill to really get inside those expressions, whether it's a, po- a poem or a song or a speech or um, a poster or whatever else. And, and so America the Beautiful in the intro kind of helps me introduce those things in, 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 on those different levels. Helps me make clear, I hope, that I'm gonna be using texts to really sort of develop my sense of these different types. That happens to be, I think, this song that in its four verses, really interestingly kind of parallels the four types that I'm arguing for. So it also helps me introduce them briefly. But it's this really sort of amazing example of how, you know, this, this one woman, this Wellesley professor, Catherine Lee Bates, writes this poem, turns it into a song. It becomes gradually this, this national anthemic kind of song that does so much cultural and social work. Um, in introducing and and in in contributing to these different stories, these different narratives of patriotism. So it's kind of like a mini case study at the beginning, happens to be a very anthemic song that's named after the nation, and that expresses that clear sense of, of patriotism on multiple levels. But it also helps me introduce, I hope, those couple other ideas, the way that voices express these different sides and the different categories and how they can be contested and in conversation, even in the same text, the same song.
1: Sure, it always makes me, you know, you're used to this song because I'm a 20th century historian, you know. um, I think about Born in the USA and how so many people walk around and they sing this Springsteen song and they're like,
0: oh,
1: he loves America. they, They have this, like, idea. And so even that exchange, the listener, even though they completely have it wrong, they have an idea about patriotism is associated with that song, the everyday man or woman walking down the street, you know? So there is something I'm like very interested in that sort of thing and looking at pop culture and how people, you know, the exchange between the producer and the listener and then what they produce or what they get out of, I guess it's fandom studies a little bit, gets us into that a little bit, I guess, too.
2: Well, and, and I think it's really important. I didn't do in this project a lot of what we might call kind of reader response or audience studies, mm-hmm. um, and I, I have a lot of fondness for those. I think they're really important methods and, and disciplines, and that would be almost the, the complement to, to almost all the texts that I'm looking at would be to think then about precisely that idea of reception and response and how audiences engaged with them in their own moment and certainly down the road. But I, I would say about Born in the USA, and I'm a Springsteen guy, so I, I've thought about that a lot. I would say that there's a really interesting dynamic, even in his song, in that version, the version that we all know, because he first writes it as this very like sad acoustic song for the Nebraska album, in which case the music and the lyrics line up perfectly as what I would call critical patriotism. They're very
1: mm-hmm. critical. Mm-hmm.
2: But then for Born in the USA, for that album, he records this new version that is anthemic, right? That sounds celebratory in its sound. Right. Well, yes. the lyrics are still very critical. And so I think he himself was sort of pulled in these multiple di- directions between more celebratory and more critical patriotism in that version, in that album, or, and even on the cover, standing you know, next to the flag, all of that. So I think while there have been obviously misinterpretations of the song by pol- uh, politicians, for example, I also think the song itself sort of has some of those layers of both celebratory and critical patriotism. and and reflects that it's not either or that again, these things are very often in conversation and and in the same place and moment.
0: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals, That's shipstation dot com with the code p o d
1: absolutely that's why why your use of America the beautiful makes me think of that one immediately because it is like you see the contestation within like the structure of the song itself and then you get into listeners and that like that's very it, it got me to think about that it's a pretty cool um way I guess you could even take that song and do a book on these four <laughs> types of um Patriotism that you identify that we're gonna talk about now. So tell tell our listeners, you know, what are these four major forms of American patriotism that you identify in the text, part one of question? And if you could elaborate a little more um on the notion of uh celebratory patriotism and how it gets manifested in rituals.
2: Absolutely. And I'll try to be quick because um obviously these are are ideas that I try to define throughout the project, and I hope people will be able to to take a look at and keep thinking about. But just to really quickly name the four, and then I'll say a little more about celebratory, as you noted. So celebratory is the first type, and I'll come back to it um, in a second, but I would say it's the one that we perhaps most often mean when we use the term patriotism, Um, shared rituals and expressions of a a celebration of the nation. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, The second type I think is connected to celebratory too much of the time, even though it doesn't have to be, as I'll, as I'll argue, which is uh, the type I call mythic patriotism. And that is the type I'm most critical of in this project because I the full name for it, um, as I introduce it, is exclusionary mythic patriotism because I think it is a type that in two different ways excludes. It creates versions of the America being celebrated that exclude uh, many different people and communities and histories and focus only on very specific ones to celebrate. Often I would say white supremacist ones in our history. And then mythic patriotism also excludes anyone who doesn't agree with that myth. Anyone who's critical of it or challenges of it, challenges it is defined as unpatriotic, even un-American, in that mythic patriotic perspective. So that's the second. And then the third and fourth are alternatives, ones that I would say challenge. Mythic patriotism challenge some of those existing narratives, even of the more celebratory version. The third I call active patriotism, which is the idea that It's not about celebrating something that's already happened. It's about taking action, serving, sacrificing in service of pushing the nation forward, of of helping it move closer to its ideals rather than celebrating existing ones. That's what I call active patriotism. And then the fourth kind of related to that is critical patriotism, which is a form of patriotism that seeks to highlight the gaps, the flaws, the failures between, say, America's ideals and its realities and histories in an effort, again, to to challenge them and to push the nation forward toward a more perfect union, a more ideal version. So those are the four types. And then just to say a couple more things about celebratory. One thing I do always try to stress is I'm not, and I know a lot of people who write about patriotism might be fundamentally critical of the idea of it. And I'm not necessarily, I think there is real value in collective shared celebration of a community that we are all part of in, Pride in that community and the best of it and an attempt to, to kind of model and move forward that best version of a community that we all share. I think there's, there can be real value in that when it is inclusive, when it does allow for all to participate, including those who are more critical. I think that's really key. So I think that form of celebratory patriotism an inclusive one um, that can come together in various kind of rituals and occasions such as, say, the Fourth of July that we recently celebrated but can do so in that inclusive way that allows all Americans to be part of those occasions and celebrations, even in critical ways, such as Frederick Douglass's wonderful. What to the slave is the 4th of July speech as an example of a July 4th patriotic text, a, a celebratory patriotism that allows for that inclusive version of those rituals, those occasions, those national celebrations, I think has real value. Um, but, I do think far too often in American history and in our present, we see that the celebratory occasions in form of patriotism turns into the mythic form. And an example of that would be the response to Gwen Berry recently when she protested during the national anthem. Um, that occasion is seen by so many as an occasion for pure celebration only that cannot be challenged and cannot be multi-layered. that has to simply be the full kind of rote participation in the ritual or else it is not patriot. And that, mm-hmm. to me, is too often what we what we really mean by celebratory patriotism, which then becomes that second category, that mythic type for me very fully.
1: I think we had a little bit of this conversation uh, <laughs> on Twitter about um, African-Americans. That's where I really want to go. I'm, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. We'll come back. All good. But yeah, but how African-Americans contribute to these various forms of development of these various ideas about patriotism. But my argument will probably be that they ultimately produce a more holistic American patriotism than any other group, right? You see all the elements, you know they're they're contributing to these various forms um, of patriotism, be it active, you know, um, critical or mythic. But I think in the African American Jeremiah, right, it's a constant. Like when you look at the black radical tradition, and um, you can see that in in Black culture more broadly, you know, all these contested meanings swirling around, but I think it's also um, ultimately producing a more holistic American patriotism. We can get back to that. Um, And some of these questions I'm raising here, but um, let's see, let's talk about, so let's talk about the Revolutionary Era, and let's try to we'll get through as much of the different parts of the book as we can. But the foundational um visions of America, um, Tom Paine, Franklin, and most I think listeners are probably familiar with, obviously the foundational ideas of um the United States in the Revolutionary Era. But also, Phyllis Wheatley, we can bring into this conversation. You know how did these. Early Americans contribute to the development of celebratory and mythic patriotism.
2: Yeah, and I think if, if you think about the Revolutionary Era, my first main time period, my first chapter af- after the intro, I think one of the things I would really stress, I'll just stress a couple things, and all of these, as you say, are, are conversations that would continue well beyond this time. And I hope people are able to take a look at the book and keep the conversation going. But the couple things I would stress one is, just how fully open and contested these these ideas were, perhaps especially in that revolutionary moment. And so an example of that for me, just to say, I think loyalists, English loyalists, during that revolutionary period have to be seen as expressing a version of patriotism, not patriotism to the United States because they didn't believe in creating a separate United States, but to their home, to their community, to the place that they were part of. And they often argued and fought for that version of home and community that they believed in. So I think in that moment, patriotism has to even include that debate, that debate between different Americans, right? This isn't just a a battle against, say, the British army. It's a debate within America between different groups and communities arguing for their home and community as they see it and as they are patriots toward it. So I think that's really important to say about that moment. It's, It's that contested even, obviously, US patriotism starts to get developed more fully by those who are revolutionaries who are participating and supporting that effort. And as they do, I think absolutely that it immediately that we can immediately see a few layers to the mythic patriotism being created as as you put it. Um, one of them, just to be clear, is the very clear us versus them kind of perspective, not just towards the English, again, but towards fellow Americans who don't support the revolution and its mythos, its ideas. And Tom Paine expresses that really clearly in something like Common Sense when he writes about you know, those who, who will allow what the British are doing to happen without fighting back and calls them the worst kind of sycophant and the worst kind of traitor. He really directs his ire at least as much, I would say more at his fellow Americans than at the British because it's the fellow Americans not supporting the revolution and its mythos who are truly unpatriotic in his lens. And then somebody like Wheatley and other poets I look at in that chapter really interestingly also advanced the kind of parallel idea of the US as a chosen place, a kind of holy land, a exceptional um, special place in the world. And and I think it's really important that poetry and cultural works can contribute to that, can contribute to this idea of of this chosen land, this this holy um, faded special community, um, as arguments for the revolution and as arguments for being patriotic toward that new United States that is being created. So all those processes are happening really interestingly in that moment um, and can be traced through different voices and texts, but also being debated. And again, I think thinking about loyalists and alternative voices as taking part in those debates is a really important way to see that from the beginning it was contested as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important, it's an important part of the book. It lays the foundation for this notion of contested uh, meanings and um looking at these this cast of characters and how they're debating you know the revolution and what what is a new America going in, going to mean? I think that's a very uh, important foundational part of the book um, What about 19th century? Uh, we're kind of moving through it a little quickly, but uh, I want to ensure kind of uh, a good coverage, but um, how did the philosophical, literary, and social movements of the nineteenth century, you know, or the age of reform, contribute to the development of active American patriotism?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really important way to put it, and I and I appreciate that framing of yours for thinking about and I think those movements and those moments. And an example that I would highlight as a really interesting pivot or place where we can see the the two ends of the spectrum when it comes to patriotism in America would be say the 1830s and 40s the early republic period which is when you first start to really see these celebrations of the revolution for example these sort of nationally developing commemorations and celebrations of the revolution which start to really harden some examples of of celebratory patriotism as well kind of i think a very relatedly of mythic patriotism when it comes to narratives from that moment like manifest destiny for example that 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 U S being commemorated and celebrated has this, again, this kind of this destined greatness and identity. But at the same time that that's happening, you then have these social movements, activist movements, whether it's transcendentalism or the early nascent women's rights movement, abolitionist movement um, voices from native American communities, resisting uh, removal and manifest destiny. You have these various social and philosophical movements that are arguing not only for different visions of America, but for the role that individuals and communities have—the active role—in in creating, in, in continuing to create the country—and I think that's a way to see transcendentalism, for example, as not just kind of an elite cadre of mostly white men in New England, which to some degree it was, although there were various voices, but also as a really interesting argument for the need for that continued active patriotism of recreating the nation, of of creating one's own version of it as as we move forward of challenging existing celebrations or commemorations and 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 seeing the present and the future as as evolving rather than more set and more a celebratory of something that already exists and just needs to be extended so i do think not only uh, political movements like abolitionism and and women's rights and and native american voices but also philosophical movements like transcendentalism or even the utopian movements of, of that era really can be seen as active patriotic attempts to, again, see the need for continued challenge and continued activism from all Americans to push the nation forward. I really think that's a part of the debate in that moment, really interestingly.
1: Yeah, sure, and um, and, and really, um, I think helping to define the nation, but just revitalizing democracy, Mm -hmm. like in order for us to survive as a democratic society, right? We must be active in in sort of um, cultivating it. Um, And so those uh, social movements, definitely, I always tell my U.S. history students, social movements define American history. Uh, But the change is the civil war, right? And and you talk about how all forms of American patriotism um, are tested and challenged um, with the event of the civil war,
2: I do, and the one that I'll, I'll highlight here again in these in these uh, snippets of these conversations that um, that I hope illuminate some of the arc of, of thinking about these across time as well. What I would really highlight here is the is the argument I make in that chapter that the Confederacy saw themselves and and have to be seen, I think, in in analyzing them as expressing a mythic patriotism about the United States. Of course, you know they ended up seceding and trying to create a separate nation. But even as they did that in their documents of secession, in the Alexander Stevens cornerstone speech, in the way the Confederacy defined their project, they really utilized a kind of mythic white supremacist patriotic vision of the United States and saw themselves as the real heirs of that United States, of the constitution as they wanted to define it, of the revolution as they wanted to define it. And I think what's really important about that is it, helps make the Confederacy and the civil war, not just a, a break, which in various ways, of course, it was from a lot of what was unfolding in the U S but also part of those through lines and not just what led up to that, but what followed it as well, that I would argue for the 150 years since the civil war, we've seen a continuation of many of those mythic patriotic neo Confederate ideas about the United States, even though the Confederate States of America lost the war that narrative, those narratives continue to unfold, those mythic patriotic neo-Confederate white supremacist narratives. So I think the Civil War is its own really complicated moment, and I try to do justice to it in that chapter. But it's also really important to see it in the through line, in the ongoing story of these different types, including certainly mythic patriotism, and not just in the Confederacy. The other thing I'll say, I, I try in that chapter to note something like the New York City draft riots, which were themselves a deeply white supremacist racial terrorism moment of violence directed at African-Americans largely in in New York City in July 1863. We just had the anniversary of it a couple days ago. And how that too demonstrates this mythic patriotic perspective during the Civil War, not just from the Confederacy, but but across the United States, from Americans everywhere, and its continued presence and its continued ongoing legacies. Mm
1: -hmm. Sure, absolutely. And... um... I think that's an important. When we go back to the ritual discussion of ritual and how you know someone will say, "Hey, you're not standing for the flag," you know, um, "you're not a a patriot." A patriot, and so I think understanding how these four different forms um, compete, overlap, and evolve is very, I think, understanding uh, important to understanding who we are. Because you know, someone says, "Hey, you're not standing for the flag," so therefore, you're you know, not patriotic, but to have a sense of, well, there are competing versions of this, really? You know, what does that mean? I think is a very important um, um, argument being made here. Uh, what about in terms of the Gilded Age, um, noticeable forms of active patriotism in this particular era?
2: So, what are the things that I tried to think about in that period? And, and the Gilded Age is the period I've probably thought and written about the most. My first book, my dissertation, was on that period, and so I'm always trying to kind of come up with new angles for myself, so I don't I don't feel like I'm treading the same ground too much. And and one angle that I thought about more in this in this chapter of this book than I think I had previously was, in part, because I've, I've often been interested in visions of the past and something like the labor movement is, of course, much more centered on the present and future um, than on on the past in a lot of ways. And so I was able to think about the labor movement in the Gilded Age, I think, kind of for the fullest time in this project than in any of my work anyway. Um, And I think one thing that's really important about that focus for me is seeing some of the most controversial voices from the period in two ways. One is that they were seen as controversial because of mythic patriotism, because they challenged national myths and so were defined as outside of the nation. And a great example of that to me are are the accused, quote, terrorists or bombers at the Haymarket trial in, in 1886. It's a very complicated moment. There's a lot going on. But fundamentally, the narratives that defined those eight accused men and the larger communities that they were part of, journalistic, political activists, that defined them as entirely outside of the U.S., foreign anarchist threats, were mythic patriotic narratives in a lot of ways. And then if we think about that, we can also think about their voices as offering an alternative and often a really interestingly critical patriotic alternative. And so I I, I talk at some length in that chapter about the the test or the the statement at the end of the trial given by August, it's probably pronounced Spies, but it's spelled spies, S-P-I-E-S, who was one of the eight accused and convicted Haymarket uh, bombers, in in quotes. Um, And he gives this really interesting final statement talking about himself as an heir to the Constitution and his project as an attempt to continue the American ideals and the American project in the face of 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 threats rather than himself a threat which is how he was so fully defined at the trial and so I just think thinking about the labor movement allows for thinking about how those two things can work mythic patriotism that can define um, figures and movements and communities as outside of America unpatriotic dangerous And then how voices and figures and communities themselves can offer an alternative, can argue for the work that they're doing as a form of patriotism, if if certainly a critical form.
1: Yeah, and that takes us to African Americans and their role in uh, defining American patriotism, um, particularly in this next era, the progressive era. Um, African American women in particular, um, turn of the century, early 20th century. Um, who were some of the figures that you discuss, in at this time in the progressive era, turn of the century, in particular African-Americans and their contributions to development of active pe- patriotism?
2: Well, sure, and, and we're recording this. I know it'll air down the road, but we're recording it on Ida B. Wells' birthday. So a happy yeah. birthday to one of my two favorite Americans of all time, Ida B. Wells, and my other uh, W.E.B. Du Bois is from that same period. So um, mm-hmm. um, they are, to me, really two amazing examples of, of the breadth of active and critical patriotism, of how many different movements and communities, even individuals, particularly such impressive individuals, could be part of. So in Wells's case, not just anti-lynching, but suffrage activism and, and workers' rights and housing rights and a number of different areas that she dedicated her long career in journalism and activism to, and in Du Bois's case... Um, So many, so many different layers of society, but even just centered around aspects of of the time of the founding of the NAACP, which they both helped found. But in Du Bois's case, how much he emphasized, for example, African American World War One soldiers and veterans as this community who really embodied both celebratory patriotism, taking part in that war effort, part of the armed services, serving and sacrificing but then critical patriotism as they returned home. And and Du Bois has this wonderful um, editorial in the Crisis Magazine that he edited for the NAACP called uh, Returning Soldiers, which I talk about in that chapter, where he he makes the case for the fight that they've been fighting um, and then the fight that they are going to continue fighting as they come home, attempting to move the nation forward. And unfortunately, as we've started to, to better remember a little bit in the last couple of years, They were met with such violent resistance through something like the Red Summer of 1919 and all those horrific um, acts of of terrorism and massacres and lynchings. But seeing figures like Wells and Du Bois and then a community like those soldiers as as all embodying, again, service and sacrifice for a larger national community, but at the same time and in an interconnected way, critical patriotism at home, pushing for that more ideal version of the U.S. um, that... That it was so far from embodying in that moment of things like the red summer
1: yeah this section or this conversation sort of gets me thinking about my dad and his um i always had conversations with him about his service in vietnam and why because he my dad became very critical of the war after he came back and i always wondered about that i was like well why did you join the military then if you know you have these feelings now and um, looking at the military sort of as a way to be, my dad's answer would always be, "I wanted to become an American."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, we were told that communism was a threat, and I thought this would be a way that I could become an American and fight against communism. But when he came back, you know, serving in the in the um, what he saw actually he would tell me, right? You know, he was a part of the Phoenix program. He's a Green Beret. And it's like, I want to be an American. Do I want to be this? Like, it made him question, what am I doing here? But he became very critical of the war and then later wars involving, um, you know, the United States. But he was like the uber patriot in the sense that, hey, I'm going to celebrate the nation. I'm going to become a soldier, um, then becoming very disillusioned. So that sort of conversation makes me think about that a lot. And um,
2: and just following that up quickly, in that 1960s chapter, um, one of the arguments I make there is that a group like Vietnam Veterans Against the War, which it sounds like your father was at least a, <laughs> a fellow traveler to that 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 community, um, I mean that's a deeply patriotic effort to me, um, both because of the service and sacrifice those those folks had made and, and made, and then in an interconnected way of of coming back and, and kind of continuing the battle, continuing to try to push for a better version of, of both that conflict and of the nation. Um, and I would, mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about making people mad. So I'll say one more thing along those lines. <laughs> um, there's a film called the green berets uh, that John Wayne makes, mm-hmm. era, which is very much the mythic patriotic version. Literally yes. um, the kind of culmination of that movie is a journalist who's been critical of the war, picking up a gun and fighting alongside John Wayne in Vietnam, which is, a war crime, I'm pretty sure. This is not a soldier. Um, But it's seen as this heroic moment of him fully embracing the war and the war effort and the US in that mythic patriotic way. And yet, to me, that is so much less an inclusive form of patriotism than what Vietnam veterans against the war and their critical patriotism embodied. So I think the 60s really provide another one of these linchpins for these, these, these levers between these very different opposed contested forms of patriotism like that.
1: Yeah, sure. Ron Kovic's born on the fourth of July. Like mm-hmm. just that title of the book and his own story and journey is saying, you know, um, it's you can see in that book, I think, these contested meanings in his own biography and how it unfolds in the biography of his life. I guess my dad's story is sort of parallel to that. Mm-hmm. And um so biography might be another lens to look at, you know, these competing forms. Um, or contested meanings in the lives of everyday people. It's really uh, um, maybe one way to look at it. Um, So we got a few more minutes, so we could get a few more questions in here. Um, African-Americans and critical patriotism in the context of the black freedom struggle since we sort of brought up the 1960s a little bit here. In what ways did African-Americans help to define critical patriotism in the era of the black freedom struggle of the
2: 60s? I think in absolutely fundamental ways. You said it earlier, and and so I'm I'm echoing and and will extend a bit what you said, that um, I mean, I'm trying to include as many different American communities and and voices in this project and in talking about it as I can. But if I were to pick one, and I've written about this in, in multiple settings in multiple ways, I do think... African-American voices and maybe especially mid-20th century African-American voices can so fully embody. And so there's a reason why the epigraph of my book, which I'll just quickly quote here, is the James Baldwin quote that I think sums up critical patriotism as well as any single quote I've ever encountered, which is uh, from his uh, essay Notes on a Native Son, the title essay of that, that collection of his where he writes, I love America more than any other country in the world and exactly for this reason. I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually, and I mean you said this before, but to reiterate it, even that quote includes at least a couple of these types of patriotism pretty powerfully. That first phrase is a celebratory one. I love America, and is mm-hmm. is at, at least a little bit a mythic patriotic idea more than any other country in the world. Right? Um, mm-hmm. You know that there is something particularly special or particularly powerful about this place and yet in Baldwin's case, as I would say in Martin Luther King jr.'s case and and many many other voices from that period and that struggle wedding that so fully to the active and critical patriotic side and and the, mm-hmm. the phrase in that sentence the clause that does that that interconnecting work is exactly for this reason right It's that mm-hmm. celebratory and the mythic patriotism are there but they require right. active and critical patriotism to be fully, Enacted to be fully realized, to be made as possible as they can, um, exactly for the reason of the of the goal of celebration and, and even of kind of embrace of the collective mythos in hopefully an inclusive way, requires the continued active and critical patriotism mm-hmm. that Baldwin is writing about there and modeled throughout his life and work, sure. and that that the whole civil rights movement in so many different ways, likewise modeled and and I think absolutely if I were to. If I were to say there's one legacy of bringing together those different types and making the case for why active and critical patriotism are not, are not, they're not only not unpatriotic but are intrinsic to mm-hmm. patriotism. It is that moment. and It is that community and, and all the different uh, layers to it. So um, that would be that would be my uh, my starting point, my baseline for for defining that combination and defining the version of it. That we can see as such a legacy to carry forward.
1: Yeah, sure. It's it's like it like, you know, intrinsic to the the African American Jeremiah. It is like, it's it's just intrinsic to African American thought. I think where you try you have this attempt to sort of balance these contested meanings of America, and um, I think like you say, the Baldwin quote was an excellent example of that. And then, in, if we look to popular cultural culture again. And um, African Americans, um, in terms of the way they interpret songs, patriotic, quote unquote, songs, um, with inflection and meaning. And it, uh, it made me think about, you know, Whitney Houston in the first Gulf War, mm-hmm. where she went all over, you know, singing to the troops. And But when you sit back and watch her interpretation of those songs, um, it's in the, in the black. Um, you know, church tradition, like in terms of the way she presents those songs and sings them and takes the the troops to church, right? They enter a Black church. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and there's a there's a wailing, like, and then tying it to the Jeremiah, like I said, there's a, there's a soulfulness to it, but there's also mourning and a wailing and, and it all comes out of the Black church tradition. So yeah, making, this book really made me think a lot about, um, African-American history, different ways. Uh, what about African-American athletes and the role that they play in the development of uh, critical patriotism at the present? Obviously there's so many examples of um, African-American athletes protesting, you know, not participating in the ritual in the context of Trump's America.
2: There are, and there's a reason why uh, Colin Kaepernick and a teammate from the 49ers are, are on the cover of my book um, in kind of a conversation there on the cover with an image of uh, Francis Scott Key um, um, at the time he supposedly was sort of thinking of or, or drafting the, the Star-Spangled Banner. Um, and, and the reason for that is is, first of all, that I started really thinking about these things around 2016. Um, I had a book come out that year that had critical patriotism in the subtitle, but I was just really starting to think about the concept at that moment in, a, in an in-depth way. And seeing what Kaepernick and others, including uh, the Minnesota Lynx players who kneeled during the anthem also in 2016 in the WNBA, um, but Kaepernick as as obviously a kind of focal point of the debates in the fall of 2016, really helped me continue to develop my own thoughts and to see a model to me of critical patriotism and not just the, the kneeling, but the way he talked about it, the way he addressed why he was doing it and what his goals were and when he would stop, which he said is when we make progress, when we move forward um, on the issues he was seeking to highlight and, and be critical of. So he modeled it, but then also the response to him, seeing the mythic patriotic attacks and criticisms and hate, um, which was obviously tied up in racism and all sorts of other things, but also had so much to do to me with what we used to typically mean, traditionally mean when we say patriotism and mm-hmm. with how much there didn't seem to be room for the alternative that was so viscerally being modeled and present on our screens and in our in our conversations, so all of that really is what really prompted this continued thought for me. And I think we've continued to see that unfold, even though, um, you, you know, we have these prior examples. We see the same debate unfold again with Glenn Berry a couple months ago, it seems, or a month ago, and and it feels like we still are unable to get out of that dichotomy of it's either the pure celebration or it's unpatriotic, un-American, shouldn't be an Olympian, shouldn't be on the team, et cetera, Um, rather than saying, let's look to these continued models of extending that legacy, extending that freedom struggle legacy, extending the critical patriotic legacy, extending all these American histories and embodying it in the 21st century, which to me is what Kaepernick and Barry and, and, and so many of these other athlete, critical patriotic protesters and activists are doing. So I just think it's a perfect... Case study and our continued inability, it seems, to have this conversation as fully as we need to, but also the models that we have for thinking about it differently and for for taking the conversation in new directions.
1: Right. The dichotomous way, the dichotomous framing is kind of, I mean, the, the notion that there are these really four competing, you know, forms, it breaks apart that dichotomy in a lot of ways that I think many Americans should really pick up this book and read it to further understand, you know, the meaning of American patriotism. So professor, what is next for you in terms of research?
2: Thank you for asking. I'm starting to think about, um, these last couple projects have been very much kind of idea driven, um, I guess, and and then using texts and stories to think through those ideas as we've talked about today. And so for the project I'm beginning now, I'm kind of flipping that and starting with a couple stories. really interestingly parallel and interconnected yet contrasting stories that I think open up to histories and ideas in really interesting ways and just to put that really quickly and simply um uh, the title of the project is in progress is uh, two sandlots and it's based on two spaces in San Francisco around the exact same moment around 1880 or so um in the build up to the Chinese Exclusion Act in that era where we see these two different sides of America in really interesting ways one of them is a place called the Sandlot, which was a place where a guy named Dennis Kearney started to give these very prominent and popular speeches. Kearney was an Irish American immigrant turned labor leader who became the dominant voice for the anti Chinese xenophobia and sentiments in San Francisco, in California, and then nationwide. Um, and his whole story is really complicated and interesting, and what leads him to that Sandlot in San Francisco where he delivers those speeches and becomes this national figure. And then At exactly that same moment in in September 1881, in a, a sand lot, an open lot in San Francisco, you have a baseball game played by a team called the Celestials, which was a team of students from the Chinese Educational Mission, a school in Hartford, Connecticut, that had been open throughout the 1870s, closed during the exclusion era. Many of the students and players travel west, forced to leave the country. Before they leave, they play a final baseball game against an Oakland team in a open lot, a lot in San Francisco. And their story, the story of the educational mission, the story of those players, the story of the Chinese in America offers this counterpart to Kearney and his arguments, but also these interconnections between them. So using the story of those two sand lots and those two moments to think about what I'm calling the worst and best of America and these different sides of who we are.
1: Hmm. Sounds very interesting. We look forward to reading your next book. Well, Ben, I want to thank you for being on the show today and taking up some time to discuss your book of The I Sing. And uh, so thank you so much for participating in this interview.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Hedy. It's been been one of my favorite conversations about this project yet, and I'm really excited to, to keep getting these ideas out there and hopefully hear from folks as they keep thinking about them too.
1: Absolutely. Buy this book, everybody.